0: There we go. Any children here between kindergarten and second grade can be dismissed to Children's Church. Love to have your kids come with us to Children's Church to an age appropriate setting while we dig into God's Word here. Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1, it's on page 675. Some of you opened right to Ephesians, didn't you? It was like Pavlov's dog, you just... Ephesians. Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to look at page 6... It's on page 675. Yes, today we are beginning a new sermon series in the Old Testament prophetical book of Isaiah. Isaiah... uh, Wow, what can you say about Isaiah? It is one of the grandest most majestic, loftiest uh, books in all of the Bible. It's certainly the the, the great-granddaddy of all the uh, prophetical books in the Old Testament. I mean, nothing rivals it, it in its literary style and its theological scope. Uh, in fact, take up this uh, sermon notes, if you would, in your bulletin, where it says, Isaiah on the front, and rather than me just going on and on about Isaiah and how great it is. Let me just give you a quote from John Oswalt and his commentary on Isaiah. He says, Of all the books in the Old Testament, Isaiah is perhaps the richest. Its literary grandeur is unparalleled. The breadth of its view of God is unmatched. In so many ways, it is a book of superlatives. Thus, it is no wonder that Isaiah is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament, and along with Psalms and Deuteronomy, one of the most frequently cited of all Old Testament books. I mean, it's an amazing book, and, and I feel daunted even by the task of preaching it. Now, I realize there are some of you number cruncher types out there who are already doing the math on how long this is going to take. Because you knew that Ephesians was six chapters, and that took a year and four months, and Isaiah is 66 chapters. So you're doing the math. You're saying, "Okay, that's about uh, 14 years." <laughs> Check, please. You know, <laughs> no thanks. Seriously, we're not going to take 14 years. Uh, what I decided to do was set a reasonable time limit—a year—and uh, and we're going to try to preach and study what we can in Isaiah and go through, uh, get the highlights of Isaiah. You probably already found this in your bulletin. It's a sermon calendar bookmark and. This is the target. We don't always hit the target, but try to hit the target. This is what I'd like to study through, and I'm sure it'll probably be a little bit longer than this, because I'll find things, I'll be like, oh, I can't pass that up, and I'll insert that and start preaching on it, and who knows what happens. But uh, this is what I'd like to do, is take us into Isaiah. So what do you know about Isaiah? Are you up on Isaiah? What can you tell me about this book and this guy You know, a lot of us, we get to the Old Testament. The Bible, for a lot of us, is kind of fuzzy and we're trying to study it and learn it. But we get to the Old Testament and we're like, whew, I'm lost. And we get to the prophets and we're really lost. And so I suspect for a lot of us, Isaiah just just sounds strange. You know, what is this? Uh, Look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, just to let you know who this guy was. What is Isaiah? Isaiah 1, 1 is the introductory verse. It actually tells us four things about the prophet. Look at 1 1. It says, The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So we, here we learn four things about Isaiah. The first is that he is the son of Amos. Okay. Second, we see that he was a prophet, uh, whoever Amos was. Uh, second, he's a prophet. You notice there it says in verse 1, the vision concerning Judah in Jerusalem. So Isaiah got a vision from God. Yeah, several oracles, in fact a whole lifetime of oracles. If you think of a prophet, we typically think of somebody who looks and tells about the future. We think of someone like Nostradamus who purportedly saw far into the future. But that's, that's not really what a prophet was in the Old Testament. A prophet more fundamentally was a spokesperson for God. That's Basically what a prophet did, they were God's email, they were God's mailmen. They would take a message from God and they'd bring it to somebody. And so uh, that, that might be a message about the present, it might be a message about the future, it might be a message about both, but that's essentially what they did. A prophet was not a philosopher, a prophet was not a poet in the sense of creating new ideas and coming up with new theories. They they're kind of had a plain message. They just came to the people saying, hey look... Remember that covenant y'all made with Moses? Well, you're breaking it. Knock it off. You know, that was their message. They came as spokespeople for God. Uh, Think of the story of uh, David. And he had uh, had that affair with Bathsheba, and then he covered it up by killing Bathsheba's husband. And God sends the prophet Nathan to rebuke him. And this was not a prophecy about the distant future. This was not about World War III or whatever. I mean, it was just about, hey, you are disobeying God's laws. And so sometimes it has an immediate message. Sometimes it has a distant message. Sometimes both at the same time. But that's essentially what a prophet was. They were God's spokespeople. So we know who he was. He was the son of Amos, whoever that was. We know what he was. He was a prophet. We also, thirdly, know where he was. It says, "...the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos saw..." during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So he was in Judah in Jerusalem. So uh, just to refresh you a little bit on your ancient Israelite history, because I know you're all up on that too. Uh, okay, Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt, right? They settle in the Promised Land. For several centuries, they're ruled by judges and prophets. They're kind of a loose confederation of tribes, until they finally say, we want a king. And so, God gives them their first king. What was his name? Saul, right? Saul, though, did not obey the Lord. And so, God removed Saul and He raised up a king after his own heart. His name was David. David's son was Solomon, the great wise Solomon. Then after Solomon, in the great golden era of Israel, there was a break in the kingdom. There was a split. Ten of the tribes went north and became, or stayed north and they were the northern kingdom of Israel. And then there was the southern tribe of Judah, with Jerusalem as its capital, and and that was ruled by the lineage of King David. So you had Jeroboam taking the people in the north, and you had Rehoboam, who was one of Solomon's sons in the south. So from that time on, until Israel was wiped out by foreign powers, it was always two nations, two states, the northern tribes and the southern tribes. Sometimes they were on good terms, sometimes they were at each other's throats and at war, so, so they had a, a vacillating kind of relationship. But that, that's essentially how the history of Israel played out up until they were destroyed by foreign powers. So Isaiah is in the southern kingdom. He's in Judah. He's in Jerusalem. He has prophecies that extend beyond Judah and Jerusalem, but that's where he's located. That's his uh, frame of reference. So we know who he is, the son of Amos, what he is, he's a prophet, where he is, he's in Judah and Jerusalem, and finally we know when he is, He was during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And I'm sure, again, we're all familiar with the reigns of Judean kings. But for those of you who may be a little fuzzy, you notice in your uh, sermon notes, I put a little timeline in. I had a lot of fun making this. Because, first of all, I had no clue when these people were. I'd sort of forgotten. So it was good just to be reminded You'll notice on the top there's the Judean kings. There's Uzziah, also known as Azariah. Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and after him came Manasseh. Manasseh's years are wrong, actually. That's a mistake. He's actually 685 to 643 B.C. And then underneath that you'll see the Israelite kings. That's that northern part of Israel. And then underneath that you'll see the Assyrian kings. And the reason they're listed is because Assyria was the superpower in the ancient world of that time. When you, th- when you hear Assyria, think northern Iraq. That's Assyria's sort of epicenter of power. Think northern Iraq. That's where they were. And they were constantly in this period spreading out and conquering down to Egypt and out east toward India. I mean, they were a very uh, voracious, conquering kind of people. And they figure prominently into the stories of Israel at this time. That's why I include their timeline there. And I'll keep bringing this timeline up in future sermon notes just so we can kind of remember when this was. So there's Isaiah's ministry. You see that? He's... Around Uzziah to Hezekiah, forty years maybe more, he was a prophet in Israel or in Judah. So who is Isaiah? What is the book of Isaiah? What is this thing we're about to study? Isaiah is the collection of prophecies and oracles of the man Isaiah during the eighth century BC in the southern kingdom of God's people in Israel. That's who he was. Which raises an immediate question, why in the world are we studying this? (laughs) Why are we studying the prophecies of some guy who lived 3,000 years ago, halfway around the world? What, What relevance could this possibly have to life in the 21st century here in the States, in America? Well, there's a lot of answers to that question. Obviously, the first answer is, well, it's the Bible. And therefore, it's God's Word, and God's Word is always alive. It never becomes antiquated. It's always fresh and living. But, uh, you know, there's other reasons, too. You have to understand the Old Testament to understand the New Testament. If you want to know what the New Testament's talking about, you find its roots in the Old Testament. As they say, the, the new is in the old concealed. So that's how it goes. Yeah, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. And so the, the two Testaments help explain one another. But even more than that, I think we need to be studying Isaiah because of its message, because of what Isaiah has to teach us. So what I'd like to do in the few uh, moments we have remaining here is give you the overview of the message of Isaiah. In other words, you know, boil Isaiah down. What's this whole book really about? There's lots and lots in here, and I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but I believe that there's a, a central message that runs through every chapter in every part of Isaiah, and we're going to hear this theological message in all the different oracles in one way or another. And if you kinda of have this central message there in your mind from the beginning, I think it helps us as we study along in Isaiah to know what the point of all this book is. So if you look at the back of second page of your sermon notes on the backside, I've identified four major themes, four major theological ideas that dominate and are the core message of Isaiah. And because I'm a preacher and preachers like to start these things with like all the same letter, you know, because like Shaw clever we are. So I have four R's here. right? Four R's. Four major themes of Isaiah. And they all begin with R. The first major theme of Isaiah then is that Isaiah is about the royal majesty of God. The royal majesty majesty of God more than anything else Isaiah is a breathtaking picture of God's greatness and majesty above every other thing that Isaiah does it gives us an incredibly uh, spine tingling fall on your face grovel on the ground picture of how awesome God is Isaiah is like going to see God on the big screen with surround sound and stadium seating where you just, wow, I can't believe this. It just comes at you. It's overwhelming how awesome God is. That's what Isaiah does. You, you, when you see God in Isaiah, you want to fall on your knees and throw yourself in the ground and say, what an awesome, awesome God you are. That's what Isaiah does. I think of Isaiah as kind of like the, uh, the Hubble telescope. And the Hubble Telescope right now is orbiting around planet Earth. It's not on Earth. It's it's orbiting around us. And the reason they put it in orbit was because it can see deep space objects more clearly because it doesn't have to be on the planet viewing light through the Earth's atmosphere. As the light from the deep space objects reaches us, it gets filtered and distorted through the Earth's atmosphere. So in order to see those deep space objects like galaxies and nebula and all those cool things more clearly, they put the telescope in outer space so it has an unobstructed view. And I think that's what Isaiah is. It's like God's Hubble's telescope for us to see who He is. We get a more unobstructed, clear view of the greatness of God, the panorama of His glory, His majesty. Whereas when we're on earth, you know, we tend to be, there's all this atmosphere between us, and we're muttering around, worrying about our careers and our. You know, finances and, and our relationships and our favorite television show. We've got to remember to take that. And, and our kids are in school. And, you know, we're just all this stuff here on earth. And, and, and there's all this stuff, it seems, between us and God. But Isaiah sort of yanks us up out of that and puts our eyes to the telescope and says, look at God. And we get this unfiltered, beautiful view of who God is through Isaiah in a way that we don't otherwise. It's an amazing book. Uh, for instance, look at Isaiah chapter... Six. I'm going to have you flip around a little bit here this morning. Isaiah 6. Just one passage. We could spend the whole morning looking at passages of God's greatness. This is the famous one. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. This is an important passage. We're going to study it later in the, the calendar here, sermon calendar. But it's uh, Isaiah's commissioning from God. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, which was... 740 B.C. So in 740 B.C. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. But this is like, oh, who is this God? He, he's so awesome. And notice how Isaiah responds. He says in verse 5, Woe to me, I cried. I wish I could say that like Danny Cross did. You know, woe to me, right? Isn't that how Danny says it? That's the idea. Woe, I'm going to be destroyed. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. This is a breathtaking, awesome, knock-you-on-your-face vision of the greatness and glory of God. I believe that more than anything else, We need a fresh vision of God's royal majesty. This is the greatest need in our day. In fact, this is the greatest need of any human being ever, in any time. The thing that human beings need, that we have lost, is a clear vision of the royal majesty and holy, holy holiness of the Lord our God. That's what we need more than anything else. I think my greatest need is other things. You know, we think our greatest need is a new boss... We think our greatest need is a husband, or a new husband. We think our greatest need is uh, an addition onto our house. My wife and I have been talking about that. We have four kids now in three bedrooms, and so we're like, oh, we've got to get an addition. Now all the talk's about an addition, addition, and, and uh, I'm doing the addition, you know, and figuring out how much is that going to cost. And, and, you know, our minds get filled up with that. That's my greatest need. Or, or my greatest need is I've got to go, you know, I've got to get a date to the prom, or whatever it is. We, we have all these things that we think are so important. But our greatest need is to see God and to know who He is. Because once you see God, your faith comes on fire. Nothing will purify your faith in your life like a fresh vision of God's greatness. Nothing will spur your Christianity on. Nothing will cause you to worship like a fresh vision of God's greatness. Nothing will sustain you through suffering and trials like a vision of God's greatness. Nothing will... uh, purify and unify and electrify the church like when the church sees God's greatness and His majesty in fact we have a term for what happens when people suddenly see God's greatness and majesty it's called revival that's what essentially what a revival is it's people getting a fresh vision of who God and who Jesus Christ are and it revolutionizes whole cultures and societies we need God's, a vision of God more than anything else I was reading a story to that effect uh, by John Piper. Some of you know John Piper. He's an author. He's a pastor out in Michigan and has a great uh, church out there. Or Minnesota, rather. A great church out there. And he's written some great books like Desiring God. If you've never read Desiring God, you have to read that book today. Go order it online. Read it. Desiring God. He's written a lot of good books. In uh, one of his books called The Supremacy of God in Preaching, he tells a story about uh, one year when he started a sermon series in January and he decided the first Sunday in January he was just going to preach about the glory of God with no practical applications. And so he preached on Isaiah 6 and he did something that they you know, warn us against in seminary, preaching without practical applications. I mean, that's the whole thing of preaching. You have to make practical applications. You have to talk about how this truth in the Bible relates to everyday life. It's one of the important parts of preaching. He said, this Sunday I'm not going to do it. I'm going to make no practical applications. I'm just going to spend the whole sermon talking about how great and majestic God is. And that's what he did. What he didn't know was that there was a young family in the church that had just very recently before that discovered that one of their children was being sexually abused by a close relative. And this family was there during that sermon and You know, part of me is like, Oh, come on, John. Get out of the clouds and come down to planet Earth where people are suffering. Uh, But he preached about God's glory. And apparently, several weeks afterwards, the father of this family came to to John Piper and he said, You know, this has been the most horrific several weeks of my entire life. Nothing has ever been worse than this. I can't imagine anything worse in my life than going through what we've gone through these last couple weeks. But he said, You know what's kept me going through all of it? that vision of God's greatness that you preached about. And he preached about it from Isaiah chapter 6. When we see who God is, when we see a vision of His glory, it will change our lives and strengthen us in ways that we cannot imagine. We need more than anything else a fresh and awesome vision of God. And that's what Isaiah is. It's the Hubble telescope that lets us see into the deepest heavens to see the majesty and the glory of our awesome God. But that leads to the second major theological theme of Isaiah, our second R. Not only the royal majesty of God, but number two, the rebellion of humanity. The rebellion of humanity. When we suddenly see how great God is, we suddenly realize how great we are not. We see ourselves in scale against God's majesty. So one of the major themes of Isaiah is, is uh, convicting Israel of its sin. So it, Isaiah is a pointed book. I mean, you've got to face this, folks. If we're going to study Isaiah, you've got to be ready to have the finger of God putting things, going on things in our lives and pointing things out. Even just studying and getting ready for these sermon series. I've been convicted big time about something. It's just so convicting because God points out the rebellion of humanity. Now look at Isaiah chapter 1, for instance. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. We're going to study this one next week. Look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. He says, Hear, O heavens, this is how the book starts. Listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master. The donkey his owner's manger. But Israel does not know. My people did not understand. Ah, and in Hebrew it's hoy, you know, hoy ve. Hoy, right? Sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a breed of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on him. The holy, royal, majestic God did something never done before in all of human history. He chose a nation for Himself called Israel. He loved them. He cared for them. He brought them to the promised land. And He gave them His laws. And what did they do? They broke His laws. They worshipped the idols. They broke all of His commandments. They lived against His ways. And so now God sends Isaiah and other prophets to Israel to call Israel to account for its rebellion against God. In a sense, uh, prophets were God's lawyers. There's another way to look at it. They were covenant lawyers. They came and said, this is the covenant that God made with Moses, Israel, and this is how you've broken it, and so now God is sending me to bring charges against you. They, They were God's lawyers, and as you can guess, they were appreciated as lawyers, as much as everyone likes lawyers, coming to them and issuing subpoenas. And that's why the prophets got in a lot of trouble and got beat up and... Killed and all that stuff because they would come and say these are the charges against you Israel and nobody wants to hear that but that's what prophets do they show us who we really are um, you know we think well I'm ok and you're ok and I'm fine and gee we're all swell and we're all dressed nicely and you know we're all nice people and yeah we have our issues but they're not really that bad and you know, you know that's how we think about ourselves and then suddenly wham God's glory comes into the picture and the unfiltered light of God's holiness shines upon us and we suddenly see who we really are. That we are a sinful and rebellious people. So it's an incredibly convicting kind of thing. We realize that, yeah, we have disobeyed God. We have not loved Him. We're not okay. So this is a very convicting book. It's going to take courage to study it. Look on the back of the sermon notes. This is a great quote here from John Calvin. This is talking about this relationship between God's holiness and our sinfulness and the way that when God shows who he is, we suddenly become aware of who we are spiritually. Calvin said, again, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him, God, to scrutinize himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us. Unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly and impurity. Moreover, we are not thus convinced if we look merely to ourselves and not also to the Lord who is the sole standard by which this judgment must be measured. As we understand the first major theological theme, that God is holy, we become painfully aware of the second major theological theme, that we are not. It's like what Isaiah said in chapter 6. Remember we studied that? We just read that a few minutes ago. He sees the vision of God, and what does he say? Woe to me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty... When we come into the presence of Holy God, it makes us painfully aware that we have not been an obedient and faithful people to Him. And that leads then to the third theme. It's going to get worse here before it gets better. Number three, the third R. We have the royal majesty of God, the rebellion of humanity. Number three, the third theme of Isaiah is the ruin of humanity. And by this I mean specifically... God judges rebellious humanity. Not just that we ruin ourselves, but that God ruins us. That God judges us and destroys us because of sin. So Isaiah is a book of judgment. Uh, Look, uh, Isaiah chapter 24. Just one little for instance in this book. Isaiah 24, look at 24 verse 1. Says, See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It will be the same for priests as for people, for master as for servant, for mistress as for maid, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for debtor as for creditor. The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The exalted of the earth languish. Why is this? Why is God judging like this? Verse 5. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. We could go on with that one. It's it's so terrifying. But notice the math. The first theological truth plus the second theological truth leads to the third theological truth. One plus two equals three. It's very logical. God is this great and awesome God who's holy. We have rebelled against Him, and therefore, because we've done that, God judges sin. I mean, that's just how it goes. God is a God who judges sin. He is a God who has righteous and holy standards. This is hard for us to understand, because we as Americans, by and large, don't think of God this way. If you did a poll of what God is like... Or what we want him to be like. I, I doubt most Americans come right out and say, judgment. I mean nobody feels that way. No one wants to be judged. In fact, the the mortal sin in America today, the one sin you cannot commit is to judge anybody. You can do whatever you want, you can live wherever you want. You can do whatever you want in a halftime show in the Super Bowl. Just just don't judge anybody. Don't make anybody feel bad. Don't tell anyone that they're wrong or that they're immoral or that what they might be doing might be displeasing to God or that there might be consequences. You can do anything, you just can't say that stuff. And so to hear about a God who judges, we go, I don't know God, that's fairly intolerant of you. I I don't know God, I I mean this is a no-hate community, don't you know that? I mean God, you you can't tell us that there are rights and wrongs, you can't give us those standards. And, And so we recoil against the thought of God's judgment. I don't like it either. I'm not sitting here reveling in it. I mean, I, I'm the same way. It's like, oh, the judgment of God. Do I really have to preach this God in Isaiah? But it's there. He is a God who judges. There's a time when God has had it. And he says, enough. You know, the picture in the Bible is of a cup. If you imagine a big chalice. And it's, a, it's called the cup of wrath in the Bible. This is an image we find. And as a nation or a people sins against God, the cup starts to fill up. And, and as we do more and more things that are displeasing to him, the cup fills up. And, and uh, you know, as, as we turn against his ways and turn against his laws, I, I, I'm, I'm as disturbed as many of you at, at uh, what our Supreme Court did here in Massachusetts by calling upon the legislature to make same-sex unions. And people, this is an abomination. Nations cannot get away with this kind of stuff. And, and that cup is there, and it's just one more thing in the cup one more thing in the cup and eventually the cup fills and when it gets to the brim, it spills over in judgment. That's the image we have in the Bible. When is it full? I don't know. I'm not God. Are we close? I don't know. I'm not God. But I'm saying He has His cup of judgment and eventually it fills up to the top and He says, Enough! And He pours out the cup. And He says, Enough! And the flood comes and wipes out the world and only Noah and his family are saved. And he says, enough! And Sodom and Gomorrah are reduced to ashes. And he says, enough! And Israel is wiped out by the Syrians in 722 B.C. And enough! And Babylon comes and wipes out uh, Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And someday God is going to say, enough! And Christ will return. And the judgment will ensue. I wish there was another way I could tell you this, but this is... God, He has enough. He puts up with our nonsense for so long in His patience, but even He cannot let sin go on forever. And eventually He says, enough, and the judgment comes. But, you know, I, I'm not trying to bum you out here. I'm not trying to stand up here and just rant and rave and scream. Because, you know, it's actually a good thing to think about the judgment of God. It's a good thing to ponder the judgment of God. Better to think about it now and have chance to respond the right way than to have to face the reality of God's judgment at point-blank range when there's no chance to repent. Better for us to hold open the book of Isaiah now and tremble with the book in our hands reading about the judgment of God and let our hearts be changed now and repent than to put the book away, ignore it, and then come face to face with God on the judgment day. That's the value in studying the judgment of God. Not that we scream and rant, rave and condemn, but it just brings us to our senses and we say, what am I doing? I have got to walk with God because the judgment is real. It's like what happened to Charles Finney, the great uh, evangelist of the 19th century. Finney was uh, studying to be a lawyer. I keep bringing lawyers into this. <laughs> Nothing against anyone here as a lawyer, by the way. Uh, but um, fin- Finney was studying to be a lawyer and uh, he was almost done with his studies and he was, came into the office one day early in the morning and was sitting there. And, and for some reason, this question came into his mind. And it was, Finney, when you get done studying law... What are you going to do? He thought, I'm going to put up a shingle and practice law. And then it's as if a voice came again to him and said, Then what? He said, Well, I'm going to make some money. Then the voice came again and said, Then what? He said, Well, retire. Then what? He said, Well, you know, then I'll die. But then the voice came again, Then what? And Finney said, the judgment. And that thought of the judgment of God just shook him. And he ran out of the law office, half a mile away, found some woods, ran into the woods, stayed in the woods all day praying for the mercy of God because he realized that his life as he had planned it was just in vain. And that someday he'd have to stand before God with nothing to protect him from God. And so he prayed and he prayed until he finally came to grab hold of Jesus Christ and to find the forgiveness and the salvation that Jesus Christ offers. And that leads us to the fourth theological theme of Isaiah. Redemption. Redemption. Number four is redemption. Between the royal majesty of God and the redemption of God is the rebellion and ruin. So you have the two good news and the two bad news. And sort of cushioned in between there. The redemption. And I'll close with this one. The last great theological theme of Isaiah is that God, despite our rebellion and the judgment we deserve, God is going to redeem a people for Himself. Despite the fact that Israel is about to be obliterated by foreign powers, God says, I'm going to save and restore a people for Myself someday. I'm going to heal a people for Myself. Look at Isaiah chapter 6. Look at Isaiah chapter 6. Go back there, that famous passage. Look at verse 5 again. "'Woe to me, I cried,' Isaiah 6, 5. "'I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty.'" Now at this point you think, all right, he's done, toast, end of story. Look at verse 6. "'Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar.'" Why is the altar important? Because that's where sacrifices for sin are made. And with it, He touched my mouth and said, See, your lip, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. The amazing story of Isaiah is that despite our sin and rebellion, God is going to make a way for us to be forgiven to be restored and to use us in a fresh way. That's the surprise ending to Isaiah. You don't expect it. It comes out of nowhere. What? God, you're going to save us? And more specifically, we could actually make this a fifth theological theme of Isaiah, if you wanted to. How is this redemption going to take place? Through the Messiah. And so we get the clearest vision of the Messiah in the Old Testament who's coming. The clearest vision of Jesus in the Old Testament comes in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, for us, unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah chapter 11, a shoot will come out of the stump of Jesse. Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah chapter 49, the servant. Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant who takes upon himself the sins of his people. There is going to come a Messiah who will save His people and restore a new people for Himself, who will be redeemed. Okay, now let's take it all together here. We've got to close. Put us all together. All those four theological themes. The royal majesty of God, the the appalling rebellion of humanity against God, the ruin and judgment that should come upon humanity, but then the redemption that comes through a Messiah. Put that all together. What's that called? It's called the Gospel. It's the Gospel message. Isaiah is nothing less than the Gospel of the Old Testament. And so it's an incredible book. That's why we need to study this 3,000 year old document. Because it has the Gospel. And the Gospel is the most important news humanity has. So I don't don't know about you, I am so stoked to study this book. I'm so excited to get into this book. I hope you are too. I've just been trying to, to communicate a little bit to you this morning of why I am fired up to study this May God bless us as we study it. May He show us the greatness of His glory. Would you pray with me? Lord, I'm, I'm just so humbled before these great themes, these great truths. I, I just feel like, like a, a, a little kid who doesn't even know how to talk up here trying to communicate somehow the greatness of Your holiness and of our sinfulness and the terror of judgment and the wonders of redemption. Lord, I can't, I can't articulate this. And so I pray, Lord, that in these coming weeks, in this coming year as we study Isaiah, that Your Holy Spirit would do the teaching in our hearts. That Your Holy Spirit would enable us to see who You are. More than anything else, God, may I in this church see the holy, holy, holy God of heaven. That we might have our lives transformed by His greatness that we might find the redemption in Christ that Lord our lives would be changed and turned upside down God you alone can do it and so we pray God do a great work in us we ask this through Christ our Lord amen Hey praise would you come...